Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator evacuating from a hurricane. I have no conflicts of interest with any devices we may discuss today. I'm Lenny Buller. I'm an academic surgeon at Indiana University, where Midwestern hospitality pales in comparison to the extreme politeness you're going to hear from our Canadian guests. I also have no disclosures to report. I'm Mark Mildred, I'm in private practice at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon, where currently the traveling scrub techs are making more money than I am. I wish I was joking. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. I'm Jesse Wolfsat, and I'm from Canada, where we all ice skate to work every morning and celebrate every successful case with a piping hot cup of Tim Hortons coffee. I also do not have any personal conflicts regarding this topic, except again with those capitalist American dogs. So uh, today it's my huge honor to introduce our two guests for this podcast. And I apologize to both Dr. Gross and Dr. Duncan for these very long introductions, but please bear with me. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Alan Gross, who is a personal mentor of mine and my senior partner at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Gross is a professor of surgery at the University of Toronto, and through his storied and distinguished career, he has amassed a reputation as a world expert in hip and knee arthroplasty, complex hip revision arthroplasty, and bone and cartilage transplantation. Dr. Gross received his MD from the University of Toronto in 1962, interned at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and then entered the surgical training program of the University of Toronto. As part of his training, he did a one-year research year under the supervision of Dr. Bob Salter, developing an animal model for cortisone arthropathy. In September of 1970, he went to the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital in Stanmore, England, where he continued his work on the immunogenicity of cartilage. Shortly thereafter, he returned to the orthopedic division of the University of Toronto at Mount Sinai Hospital, where along with Dr. Fred Langer, he developed a clinical and research program in bone and cartilage transplantation. Bear with me, I've still got a little bit more. The first osteochondral allograft was performed on New Year's Day in 1972 for a traumatic defect of the knee. And a limb salvage tumor program followed shortly thereafter. And one of the first bone banks was then established in Canada at Mount Sinai Hospital so that preserved tissue could be used for tumor surgery. Dr. Gross became the head of the Division of Orthopedics at Mount Sinai in 1972 and the Chief of Surgery in 1975. He became the A.J. Latner Professor and Chairman of the Division of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Toronto from July 1st, 1986, for I think an unprecedented term of 11 years, finishing in July of 1996. And presently, he's a full-time orthopedic surgeon in the Division of Orthopedic Surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital and continues to speak internationally at conferences and invited lectureships all across the world. He holds the Bernard I. Gert Family Foundation Chair in Lower Extremity Reconstruction Surgery, and I think most importantly serves as a team doctor for the Toronto Blue Jays for 30 years and has two World Series rings from the Jays Championships in 1992 and 1993. And the second, and certainly not the least, is Dr. Clive Duncan, who is a Professor Emeritus of the Orthopedics at UBC. Dr. Duncan graduated from Dublin University Medical School in 1968 and shortly thereafter moved to Vancouver to pursue residency training in orthopedics. Dr. Duncan quickly established himself as a leader in orthopedics, winning numerous research awards and clinical awards. In 1975, he is awarded a Samuel McLaughlin Postgraduate Fellowship to support advanced training in complex hip reconstruction and musculoskeletal oncology in Toronto under the tutelage of Dr. Gross as well as in Boston under the tutelage of William Harris and in Gainesville, Florida under the tutelage of Dr. Enneking. He returned to UBC in 1977 and served as the head of orthopedics at UBC and department head of orthopedics at Vancouver General Hospital from 1996 until 2006 and continues a very busy clinical and research practice with the Center for Hip Health in Vancouver. He has received the Sir John Charnley Commemorative Gold Medal 
presented to him by Lady Charnley, Sir John's widow in 2009, and his Charnley Address to the British Orthopedic Association. That was after his Charnley Address to the British Orthopedic Association. He also received the William Harris Gold Medal on the occasion of his Harris Oration at Harvard Medical School in Boston in 2010, and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the North American Hip Society in 2016. So without further ado, I will turn it over to these two very accomplished, I think, legends of orthopedics. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. I think maybe we'll start off on a bit of a light note. Dr. Gross, you're probably one of the only orthopedic surgeons out there with two World Series rings. Maybe you can comment on your greatest memory from a 30-year career as a team doctor for the Blue Jays, then maybe also your least favorite moment. My least favorite moment was like decades of watching them lose until they finally came around to spending some money and drafting some very good players. Most of them were like rental players for one year. Guys that were, were at the end of their contract with other teams that they could pick up. So we picked up some superstars like Dave Winfield and Paul Molitor and people like that. And uh, we were able to put a, together teams that uh, won the uh, World Series in 92 and 93, which was a consecutive World Series, which was unheard of. I had a lot of fun traveling with them. And being at their beck and call, that was an unfortunate part because they would phone and they expected immediate service. Um, my strength of being the Blue Jay doctor was the fact that I was an arthroplasty surgeon. So I was quick to refer the, uh, the serious sports injuries to people that knew a lot about sports medicine, like uh, Jimmy Andrews in Alabama and Frank Joel, people like that. So instead of arguing with the uh, executives of the Blue Jays that I can take care of this, it was never a problem. They never had that problem, and the agents loved me for that. So it was, uh, it was like running away and joining the circus, my experience with the Blue Jays. Did you find yourself during those just that long of a tenure with the team, did you find yourself almost adopting like a father-type role to some of these guys that are coming in, they're younger, they're like, making a lot more money than they know what to do with? And yeah, a lot more money than I was making. The ball players, when I first started and I was still young, they would try to get very friendly and they would want to go out for dinner when we were on the road. And then the general manager of the team took me aside and he said, you can't do that. You can't get too close to these guys uh, because it'll come back to haunt you. So he said, don't, so you can socialize very superficially, but don't start bar hopping and going out uh, for dinner with them uh, because you have to be very objective. So we weren't allowed to do that. So Dr. Gross, you've obviously met and worked with some of the pioneers of hip and knee replacements, such as Charnley and, and Insall, and, and certainly some of the Canadian legends like Salter and McIntosh. You once told me a, an amusing story of the time you met Charnley's wife, Lady Jill Charnley. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that story, because I, I, I always find it, I always get a chuckle. It's a little bit embarrassing, but I'm sure Clive remembers Jill Charnley. She was a a beautiful nurse that was very junior to John Charlie and exactly the opposite. She was extroverted and full of personality. And anyway, about maybe 10 years after he died, or maybe even longer, maybe about 20 years, I operated on a guy named Dennis Smith, who some of you may know, but he's the guy that worked with John Charlie in developing bone cement for fixing these hips, fixing both the acetabulum and the femur. And he was actually a dentist, but he had a PhD and he did research. He had moved to Toronto to head up the Biomaterials Institute at the University of Toronto. And sure enough, he came to see me with arthritis of both of his hips. And um, at that point, John Charlie, of course, had passed on. And I operated on them and I did bilateral hybrids. So I did uncemented sockets and I did cemented femoral components. And he was very active and these hips lasted, as far as I was concerned, they did okay. Eventually I had to revise both of them. But at that time, it was at about 15 years, which was pretty good at that time. They had this big meeting about bone cement in Manchester. And uh, they invited me to talk about the experience of bone cement and revisions. 
And of course, Dennis Smith was there and Jill Charnley was there. So Dennis Smith was already waiting for his revisions and his gait was like pathetic. He was like over and like bilateral three plus positive Trendelenburg, like so embarrassing for me. So I am standing about two places behind him in line to get on the bus. And he's talking to Lady Jill Charnley. I think she was a lady, Lady Jill Charnley. And so he, she watched him walk up to the bus with this terrible limp. And she said, what's wrong with you? And he said, well, I had my hips replaced 15 years ago. And now I'm just waiting to have them revised. And she didn't know who I was. And she didn't know I was like easily within earshot. And she said, 15 years? If John had done your hips, they would have lasted forever. <laughs> There's another John Charnley story. I don't know if you're interested in this stuff, but um, John. We love this stuff. <laughs> he had no personality at all. And so he used to see his patients in the clinic at Writington. And they would be, he, the registrars would see the patients and then the patients would all be sort of standing by the beds and John Charlie would walk by and the, the registrar would say, well, this is a 75-year-old male and he's using two canes and he's really quite disabled using analgesics and John Charlie would say, total hip. And then you go on to the next one, exactly the same thing. And the patients would just sort of nod, yes, sir, thank you, sir, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And he would go through, he went through about 10 of these and finally he came to this lady and the same history, you know, disabled on serious analgesics, two canes and so forth. So he said, total help. And he started to walk away and she said, oh, Sir John Charlie, I have a few questions to ask. And he turned to the registrars. It's like the suit Nazi, no total help for her. <laughs> that's awesome we were talking before the podcast one of our favorite classifications and orthopedics is all about classifications one of our favorite classifications is the vancouver classification for beloved periprosthetic fractures i was wondering if you can go into a little bit about maybe how you recognized this was something that needed to be classified, how you came up with it, and why didn't you call it the Duncan classification? That has a nice ring to it. How did you go with Vancouver? It seems that we, we decided it was very, very Canadian that you, wouldn't, you would come up with something and then not name it after yourself. Thank you for that compliment, Mark. I, I appreciate it. Well, I think I have a learning disability to start with. I have difficulty with complex ideas and they make sense to me when I simplify them. And basically that's always been at the basis of trying to understand something and then explain it to someone else. And uh, way back in uh, 1991, C. Swarabek, whom you all have heard of, you've read his stuff, and I were putting on a meeting in Whistler. And those days, you didn't submit a list of topics you'd like to participate in. You were told what you would speak on. And one of the things on the list he sent me was periprosthetic fractures. So I spent a weekend trying to figure out what rationale I used to approach these. It was fairly clear what I was doing, although I had to come out of the woodwork after I thought about it. And the only difficulty I actually was having in 1991 was with the PowerPoint. The PowerPoint had just been released and I spent the entire weekend trying to figure out where to put the dots and all the rest of it. Finally put it together and I presented this and I thought basically this is how I think my way through these. And to my surprise, it went over well and people came and spoke to me about afterwards. Then I got an invitation to speak about this at the Academy and then I was asked to publish it. And by the way, the first publication is a published instructional course lecture. It's not a peer reviewed papers, ICL 1995, which I wrote with Baz Masri, whom you may have heard as well. He was a senior resident at the time. I said, Baz, you know, people seem to like this. Would you like to join me in publishing this? And that basically is, is where it came from and it uh, caught on. So much so that a few years ago, almost 10 years ago now, AO said, you know, this has become so popular and seems to make so much sense. Would you write this chapter and blah, blah, blah on, on periprosthetic fractures, which I was pleased to do and said, but I've been thinking about converting this to periprosthetic fractures affecting all joints. What do you think about that? 
And as I did with Baz to publish the first paper, I got a hold of Faraz Haddad and said, what do you think about this idea? And that was interesting because he was in a car with his five children on his way to the airport in Los Angeles, driving and talking on the phone. And he said, you know, what do I have to do to get you off the phone? And I said, well, all you have to do is say yes. <laughs> he said, I'm going to have to do that because there's an awful lot of cops around here in Los Angeles and I'm driving and speaking on the phone at the same time. So we came up with this chapter called the Unified Classification uh, System, which is basically an expansion of the Vancouver classification and its application to other bones and other joints. Why I call it the Vancouver? I'm not really sure. C. Swarbeck told me once, if you, if you put your name on something in orthopedics, it may be a one-way ticket to nowhere. So always keep that in mind if you're going to put your name on. Alan, you're laughing. <laughs> you recognize C. Swarbeck here, right? Added to which, I will say this, although it's somewhat emotional, I really had very strong feelings about Vancouver, which had been generous to me since I got off a plane in 1970. I thought everything that I've done with my career to date, I can attribute to the people that have been so kind to me in this city. I'm going to call it the Vancouver classification. That's really the story behind it. That is wonderful. Dr. Duncan, on that note, I may just continue that thought and ask you what brought you to to Canada and more specifically Vancouver to do your training and why did you stay? Yeah, I, w I found myself passionate for reasons I didn't fully understand about uh, surgery on the musculoskeletal system. And it's because of a few things I had read and so forth and some people I had met along the way. However, residency, resident training was not well organized on the other side of the Atlantic in Ireland or in Britain. And the first true residency program was actually introduced by a man named Jip James, a scoliosis leader in Edinburgh, who defined there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then you go away, get a job, or whatever you like, but make room for the next wave. While uh, I had done an externship in New Jersey in 1967, I was very impressed by how organized people were in Canada and the United States in having a middle, a beginning, a middle and end, a true residency program. And not only that, they needed to be accredited by some accreditation body. In Canada, it's the Royal College. So the teachers, the universities had some standards to lead up to and the residents were in control of their, uh, of their education. I was attracted to going somewhere in North America, but there was a little argument going on in Southeast Asia at that time, which my generation uh, did not necessarily agree with. So I thought, I'll go to Canada to start and we'll see how things go. And a man I was working with at the time named Alan Graham Apley, wonderful educator, said, you know, you should look at Vancouver. There's a young program there being run by a guy named Frank Patterson. I think it has a great future. So if you're looking for a future in North America, go there, have a look at it, and then go from there. So that's really how it, how it all happened. Thank you. That's great. That's wonderful. That's a great Thanks story. for sharing. So Dr. Gross, Jesse mentions that uh, over the course of your career, your office has been pretty much a revolving door for the who's who in high society in Canada, celebrities and athletes, any fond memories, any stories that might stand out? Who threw the best parties? I met lots of very famous baseball players over the years because when the visiting teams were in town and they had various orthopedic problems, they would send them to my office. And also Toronto is a big movie capital. They make a lot of movies in Toronto for tax reasons. So I've had people like Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, various comedians, but that was just an interesting part of my practice. It wasn't a very major part, but I want to tell you a story about Clive Duncan, if I can. Can I do that now? Absolutely, please. But you have to understand that Clive, he was like a part-time clinical fellow for me. He was working with a back surgeon named Ian McNabb, who I'm sure you've never heard of because you're not spine surgeons, but if you were, you would have, you'd know who he was. So Clive would come over once a week and spend an, an afternoon or a, maybe it was a day with me. And Clive being Clive is, you know, not only very inquisitive, but he wants real objectivity so we were just starting the osteochondral allograft program. And a lot of people were looking at this program like, you guys must be crazy putting in fresh 
cartilage into knees. And by the time Clive came to Toronto, we had probably done about 10 of these. One of the days in the clinic, a patient that had had a cartilage transplant about two years previous came in and she looked pretty good. And Clive was very interested in what we were doing. So I showed him the physical examination, the pre-op x-rays, post-op x-rays. I asked her how she was doing. She said, great, I'm fabulous. And then Clive said to me, I walked out of the examining room and Clive said, do you mind? He said this with this beautiful Irish sophisticated accent. Alan, do you mind if I spend a few minutes with her alone? I have some questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I know what those questions are. You know, cut the bullshit. He's not in the room. Did this thing really work out for you? So that's the kind of inquiring mind that I have. Do you remember that? Oh, I absolutely do. I, I, <laughs> that's one of the lessons, many lessons I got from Alan about body language and his charm. She didn't mind telling me how she really felt about it, but not while Alan was in the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this man, Ian McNabb, was also a very, very funny individual. I recall he was asked to critique a paper on the podium once, on those prospective randomized studies. And he would open his discussion with things like this. This is the first prospective, randomized, triple blind study I've been asked to discuss. <laughs> the patient doesn't know what was done. The surgeon doesn't know what was done. And neither of them know why it was done. <laughs> I'd sit beside him at a meeting and he'd turn to me and say, you know, that's good work, but it's six up. What the world needs is seven up. <laughs> <laughs> David, there were some characters in Toronto. It was a one, and thank you, Alan, again for all your uh, warm hospitality when I was there. Dr. Duncan, from, from one gross fellow to another, uh, can you recall your, your funniest or, or favorite moment of? learning from Dr. Gross. I have mine, which I'll share in, in, a, in a few moments. It was out, actually. I was going to tell that story. And there was one subsequent to that. And I, I, Alan and I have never really resolved this. But Alan had, you may remember this, Jesse, had a definition of success, which was 20 points or more improvement in your score. You recall that? Yeah. Yeah. So I were maybe I don't know if we're at CCJR or what, Alan, but I did ask this question. You still haven't answered it for me. I said, Alan, if you start off with a score of 10 and you bring the patient to 31, why is that a success? <laughs> so could you answer that for us now? <laughs> I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I have one other. Um, what, can I ask Clive a question? Please. We'll sit back. What made you decide on orthopedic surgery? And then I'll tell you what made me decide on orthopedic surgery. Well, I decided at a very early age, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be in, in medicine for a whole host of reasons. And we all have our own reasons. But I was very attracted to the structural aspect of it. And I remember telling myself, instead of going into endocrinology to prevent a fracture, I think you'd prefer to take the fracture and fix it and get, have that patient get on with their lives. And then there was a two-volume series written by Crawford Adams. Do you remember that one, Alan? Yeah. yeah. Which, for reasons I don't really fully understand yet, I devoured on a weekend when I was a, a medical student. And one of those few books where I learned it from beginning to end, it all made so sense. It was so beautifully written and illustrated. And after my internship, went and spent a little time looking after fractures in a hospital north of London, then went to work with Alan Graham Apley. And anyone who spends a little time with Alan Graham Apley would be committed to orthopedics for the rest of their lives because he made it such a romantic specialty, as you'll remember. Yeah. So that was it. It was just a sure, sheer pleasure of being able to take something that is broken, put it back together, something that's worn out make that mobile and pain-free yeah. again. And there's never been a hesitation in my life about that decision. So I'm going to tell you what happened to me, whether you want to hear <laughs> it like or not. Sure. I'm going to be a general surgeon. And um, I did about six months of general surgery, and I found that the mood of the general surgeons was kind of dour. They, they were like almost like anesthetists. It, it wasn't what I would call a happy specialty, and it still isn't. <laughs> 
Then I went to orthopedics. And these guys are dancing around, having fun. It was like, I couldn't get over it. And right during my residency, my six months in orthopedic surgery, this is just so fortunate. Along came total hip replacement. And Toronto was one of the first places in North America to do them because my boss, a guy named Ted Dewar, was a traveling fellow with John Tranley. So he went over and spent a week with John Tranley, came back and started doing hip replacements. By the way, 100% dislocation rate, but we eventually learned how to do this. So <laughs> and then at the same time, internal fixation of fractures came along. So those were like the two biggest game changers in orthopedic surgery, joint replacement and fixing fractures surgically. And I was like a senior resident and then a fellow when both those things came along. So all these guys that were happy and dancing around and so happy with their specialty even became happier. And the general surgeons became more miserable and I decided I'm gonna be an orthopedic surgeon. So everything in life is timing. You know, it's extraordinary the impact that hip replacement had because I mentioned this man aptly earlier. I asked him when I was with him, what do you think about this operation? And he was doing the McKee Farrar, the metal on metal. That's what they were experimenting with. And he made a very interesting statement to me. He, he said, someone other than Charnley has to look at the results of Charnley because nothing in orthopedics has ever been or ever will be 98% success. And of course it was. That's why you asked me to be along with that patient. <laughs> I have a question for both of our esteemed guests. Hip replacement, they've gone through a few changes since the days of Sir John Charnley and his beautiful wife, Lady Jill. So I just wanted to know what, what changes do you think may be on the horizon, if any? That term flattening the curve is very common today with reference to COVID-19. And we have managed to flatten the curve of infection, but not reduce it down to zero. And we flattened it somewhere around, what, 70s, 80s, Alan, I would think. And yeah. since then, it has remained at 0.5 to 1.5. We don't seem to make a dent in that. And you can multiply that by two or three where revision is concerned. So that's been one of the uh, less successful uh, parts of uh, joint replacement. Apart from that, it has been a great success story. And the biggest leap, I think, was with highly cross-linked polyethylene. It's yeah. amazing what effect it's had and how that's felt through all the other joints. We I, have to I be agree. careful not to, leave, not to leave grannies behind. We're still seeing post-operative periprosthetic fractures when non-cemented stems are used. We have to deal with that in some way. But where I starting off today, I would put a lot of focus, I think, in my career on infection, which remains one of the unsolved yeah. problems, primary and secondary. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that we, we have flattened the curve with regards to infection. And I also agree that the real game changer for me, because I was a big revision surgeon, was cross-linked poly. It just changed everything. So now... Most of the revisions we do now are complications. They're not really revisions. They're periprosthetic fractures and they're infections. It's very rare now that we, we actually do a revision for wear. We don't do them for wear. And except, of course, thank God for the metal on metals because they totally rejuvenated my practice. And there's going to be something else, something like the dual mobility cup. You know, I could just see that one coming over the horizon. There's too many weaknesses in that construct. So every once in a while, something comes along and we see it. But cross-link poly really changed things. And it did, but it was temporary. Do you see us with the infection? You know, we flatten the curve. Do you see us ever getting to where, you know, that is 0.1%? Do you think it's a matter of you know, we're just operating on imperfect people or do you see something changing the game in the future? We actually do take that number down. I think it's reasonable to expect if we keep up our search for this uh, to get it down to 0.5%. And you've touched on one of the things that the people we operate on, there's the preoperative selection, there's the preoperative screening, the diagnosis is still an issue. We need uh, biologically treated implants for those at high risk obesity and diabetes. 
and we need higher success in single stage. We're getting there with the knee because we don't mind using antibiotic loaded revision knee replacement in one stage. But many, if not most of us, do have a problem with that around the stem, the long cemented antibiotic coated stem. So I think we will get there. And I think 0.5 is reasonable to aim for, but we're not there yet. It really is a very flat. There's a little depression every now and again, and then a meta-analysis done of the literature and you realize you're back to where you started. Just like the D, the DA hip, which I don't know if you guys want to get into tonight or not, but there again is that controversy and you just, uh, and there are good reasons for it because the data remains lacking. I think that the reasons why the curves flatten, not just for infection, but all complications is because of the surgeons because there's a lot of surgeons doing joint replacements and they're doing 10 a year or 15 a year. And they're the ones that send us all these, these complications. So if you had centers that did nothing but total joint replacement, mm-hmm. sure you could drop that infection rate down very, very low. But as long as they're doing them in communities and there are surgeons that are doing very few but don't want to refer them to an arthroplasty surgeon, you're going to have problems of getting rid of that flat curve because the weakness in the system is the human being. That's the weakness. So Dr. Gross, in Canada, how does it work with a nationalized healthcare system? Why can't there be those centers of excellence if, if there's a central control the, over the system? The reason is because we, you think of it as a nationalized health care system, but it isn't really. It's a government system, but we are on fee-for-service, salary. I mean, if you work at a university, you could be salary, but basically we are fee-for-service surgeons. So the surgeons depend upon getting these cases in order to support themselves. So if they're referred a hip replacement and they've only done five or six that year, they're very unlikely to refer it to an arthroplasty surgeon. So even though it's a national system, it's a fee-for-service system, and the patients have their choice of surgeon within their province. So somebody could come to me for a hip replacement or go to somebody that's been in practice for one week for a hip replacement because it was closer to them. And interestingly, we would both get the same fee, exactly the same fee. That's how I started my practice. I would just scoop them up before they got to the end of the hall to your office. <laughs> I, I was wondering why I had so many absent patients. Patients that didn't show up. All the ones with the limps are mine. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> but I, I, w- I would like to say, because this is being recorded and maybe listened to by a number of Canadian surgeons, that it's very, very uncommon for there to be a Canadian surgeon in practice who only does a handful per year. Uh, the, uh, the average orthopedic surgeon is very busy in joint replacement and well-trained. Uh, and I would suggest that the uh, instances of infection in those smaller centers may not be much larger than it is in the larger centers, where, of course, we have other reasons to have a high infection rate because we're looking after tertiary care. So uh, I think we need to be cautious about running away with that concept. And the other thing is that the American system is so much different than ours. Like here, like Jesse's been in practice for, what, a couple of years, and he's already busy. In the States, there's much more competition for patients, and the surgeons are much you know, less likely uh, to refer them. Canadian surgeons are very busy. Actually, I would like to delve in, if you guys don't mind, I would like to delve into that a little bit because the Canadian system is much different, at least the talks that we've kind of had with Jesse, just in the overall compensation, like how you're allotted cases. In the States, we work, you know, we can do basically as many joints as you want. You just keep working and that's, you just work and work and work. And if uh, there's six joints that need to be done, then you, do six joints in that day and, and you just keep going. There's no limit. There's no ceiling that you can reach. Uh, Jesse's kind of told us in the past that in Canada, it doesn't really work like that. I was wondering if you guys would mind going into the, maybe that a little bit, just because it's so different than what we're used to in the States. Well, you're capped in the number of joints you can do because the hospital is run in a management paradigm. It has a budget from the Ministry of Health and it has to fit everything into that. 
So if you are a very successful arthroplasty service, in fact, the hospital doesn't necessarily, you're not necessarily that popular with the hospital because there has to be give somewhere else in that system. So fundamentally, it comes down to that. You know pretty well at the beginning of the year how many joints you can do, so to speak. And when you go beyond that, there have been instances where the arthroplasty program was shut down because the hospital didn't have the budget to pay for the care of, of those patients. I always looked at the American system of being, it's almost like a retail outlet, like a store. You know, the more customers that come in, the better. And whereas under the Canadian system, the more customers come in, it burdens the system more. So you get helped by all these customers and it causes us somewhat of a burden because the hospitals have this global budget, a universal budget. And they can only do so much within it. So if you're like Clive and like the Mount Sinai, because they have prioritized orthopedics at the Vancouver General as they have at the Mount Sinai. So we get more than our share, but definitely it's still capped. There's only so much operating room time. There's only so many nurses and so forth. Whereas in the States, I know at the Mayo Clinic, they could operate all night if they wanted because it's for the clinic. And just from a practical standpoint, do you kind of try and spread it out over the course of the year? Do some people work a lot in the first six months and then meet your... How does that work, practically speaking? Practically speaking, you divide it into 12 months, and then you take your time off by sharing the load with your colleagues. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Not that you're aware of. Dr. Gross and Dr. Duncan, what do you find exciting about the next, say, 10 years of arthroplasty? What is out there as far from a technology standpoint, besides for highly crossing polyethylene? What do you see that's exciting? How do you see orthopedics continue to change the game besides for decreased infection? I think the same day surgery stuff is pretty exciting. I think it's changed the way we practice a lot. And it's forced the anesthetists to change the way they're practiced. So I think that's pretty exciting. And maybe we can do more and more uh, same-day surgery, um, which actually does save the hospital money in terms of, of overnight stays. As far as the, the actual articulation, the articulating surface, which everybody's trying to improve, and that's what led to metal on metal, of course, which was a disaster. I think what we have right now, especially... Uh, if you do a ceramic on cross-link poly, I think it's going to be very, very hard to beat it. So I think the logistics of surgery is maybe an area that could be improved a lot, like same-day surgery. And maybe there could be a little bit more done with surgical approaches. But if there is, it can't be a bandwagon that everybody jumps on for marketing purposes, because that's what leads to failure. Clive Duncans will look at things objectively. Just remember that patient of mine. You know, Mark, there's such deep satisfaction in what we do. Even if we were not to go any further, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that our specialty does attract the best and the brightest from our medical schools. And that in itself is going to speak to the future, as far as I'm concerned. I'm amazed at the talent of the people we attract and how they perform during the programs. Not always do you get to see what's next around the corner coming your way. And if, as, as Alan has done, you try and do a gap analysis, where do we need to go next? It's actually hard to find that need. And we keep searching for how we might improve things. And robotic-assisted surgery is one of them. But that's been around an awfully long time, Mark, and it's still not delivering. It did make some sense to me at one point when it was proposed that it would reduce the width of the outliers. You'll remember that period of time, and yet that was disproven. There's little doubt that it will improve the precision whereby we align certain things. And we do need to focus on that where the acetabulum is concerned. But to convert that into a cost-benefit analysis so you justify the upfront expense and the extra time used is still difficult to do. Yeah, as somebody who uses robotics myself and somewhat hates them, it's uh, definitely see the benefit and the downside at the same time. But Mark, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. 
when a patient comes to your office, do they bring up the subject of robotic-assisted surgery? Because we get the impression there's a certain amount of direct-to-consumer going on here. 100%. And some of this is the cert, like us as orthopedic surgeons' fault because it, it goes back to, I think, what Dr. Gross was alluding to earlier. It's a bandwagon you can jump on. It is something you can easily market to patients. And in either system, US <laughs> or, or Canada, you want patients to seek you out. And so if you can differentiate yourself somehow, patients latch onto that. And there's a lot of buzzwords that come with the robotics, you know, less invasive, you know, people think it's hot, more highly technically advanced. More um, and there's a lot of uh, more precise. Exactly. There's a lot of things that people latch onto that maybe they don't understand. But I mean, people that are looking to sell themselves, uh, wow, this just got a little bit deeper than I maybe should get with this. Uh, people that are looking to sell themselves really use that to say how they are doing surgery better than someone who does it manually, even though the data doesn't show that. You are competing in a more competitive uh, environment. There's no doubt about that. And I would think that if Alan and I were going into practice tomorrow, we would decide that we can't afford not to have robotic assistance, not to be au fait with the DA approach because you really are still trying to deliver the satisfaction of your patient. And if they have a preconceived idea of what might be better for them, you've got to yes. listen to that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's hard to convince them otherwise. So as somebody do, who does mostly posterior lateral approaches for the hip, if a patient comes in wanting a DA approach, I can tell them everything about the results, everything about the outcomes, tell them what the data says, but they've heard less invasive. And they latched onto that and that's what they want. Um, so it's very hard to convince them that number one, robotics does not deliver better results. Uh, and num number two, well, stuff like the, the DA, it's just not better, even though they think it's better. And we but should Mark, if you can deliver, Mark, if you can deliver the equal outcome with the PL versus the DA, why don't you go and learn the DA? That's what your patient wants. And that's fair. Um, I think as somebody who knows the DA and knows posterior lateral, I think I do better surgery from a posterior lateral. Okay. Okay. Because the one issue with the DA, and I thought we'd get into this tonight, of course, is the learning curve, as we all know. And if you're sure. brought up with the DA as a fellow or a resident, you'll find it a lot more facile to do. I mean, I've gone, I've learned how to do DA and I can do the DA. And I think if a patient was to insist on it after the education, I can at least say to myself, as long as it's not an unsuitable patient, okay? Sure. Very robust, very rubenesque. As long as it's a suitable patient, I can say to myself, well, the DA and the PA and the PL will be equal in outcome. I'm now at the top end of my learning curve and beyond that, except for the fact that it'll take me a little bit longer and it's not very much longer. Okay, I will agree to do that after I've been through the process of informed consent with my patient regarding the lateral cutaneous nerve, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think it's going to go away. The DA dilemma is not going to go away until there's a convincing study that you can share with the patients that the media will latch onto that it is riskier. And that may come out somewhere along the line, but all the recent data suggests to me that they're about equal at this point. Alan may want to comment on this, but some years ago, he and I were involved in a prospective randomized study looking at the G3 approach. Do you remember the G3? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember that one? So it's between the interval of the anterior uh, edge of gluteus medius and the posterior edge of tensorius slip in there. And I was involved in the refinement of that with a guy named Rettinger from Munich. <laughs> Alan can take up this story in a minute, but I managed to talk him into doing a bunch. So he got up the learning curve and then joining us in this prospective randomized study. And halfway through it, he said, do you realize how much you have ruined my life? <laughs> I spend Monday at the clinic, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, doing all the revision stuff. And I look forward to Fridays so I can have a straightforward primary total hip day. And you yeah. have now just gone and ruined it. I've got to go in and struggle with this G3. Just because I said yes to you after a martini. <laughs> the study actually showed that the complication rate was much higher with this anterior drug. The other thing we went through, and I don't even know if you guys remember it, is the two incision mini. Mm. Heard of that? That was pure torture. So Fatism. this delightful operation that everybody 
was so happy and content with him. It was like, it was just pure pleasure doing a total hip replacement. And we went to the two incision mini and it was pure torture. So it's the nature of orthopedic surgeons, you know, orthopedic surgeons Searching. Have established themselves in some way. <laughs> and when people started doing the two incision mini, I didn't want to get left behind like many other surgeons. So we did about 30 of them. I will never forget that experience as long as I live. The most pleasurable part of the week was turned into pure torture. And I think that's true for some other approaches too, like the anterior approach. If you've always done a posterior lateral approach, and unless your patients are insisting on a change, I wouldn't change. If you're a resident or a fellow, I think you should have a serious look at it. Well, something that needs to be mentioned too is as the anterior approach has things that can be easily marketed or that is very appealing to the public, I think it's up to us to find ways to market the posterior lateral approach to the public. Like, sure, it's been around for a while, but make it sexy somehow. And that's, I don't know, I kind of feel like that's on us if we are going to show that it's equal and make the public seek that out, it's up to us to find ways to seek it out so that if you do think you're doing better surgery from a posterior lateral approach, you're not being left behind or it's, I don't know, we're, we're in a oh, new wow. that, That's true, Mark, Mark, but I think it needs, to, you need to get good data that the media will latch on to. Sure. And there may have to be some prominent court cases as well before you can really bring the freighter to a stop and have a good look at this. Speaking of good data, one of the questions I did want to ask, you guys have almost 100 years of combined experience, and we talked about reducing infections earlier. And you guys do stuff maybe a little bit different in Canada than we do in the U.S., but for the optimal irrigation solution after a knee replacement, do you find that it's maple syrup or Labatt Blue? What is the... Uh, <laughs> Are you talking? one person laughing. I, I got Dr. Gross. The surgeon is Labatt Blue. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I mean, as you know, Mark, this is all over the map. The data is in support of that. We think at the moment we're now easing into dilute betadine to help decolonize the wound. And we may get there if we can find a sterile betadine, of course. Some of that yeah. stuff can have some weird other organisms in it. What I think we do know is that to sprinkle vancomycin powder into the wound before you close every case is not a good idea. We're asking right. for another disaster to come down the line. Yeah, we and there's, now, there's good, now there's good data on that uh, that has failed to show the superiority in the average patient, although we're still dealing with the, what about the intraosseous vancomycin? Now, that's another little hurdle we've got, we've got, to, get, we've got to get over. Alan, you used to have a, a secret concoction of some sort. You would well, we call it the, the triple wash. Hmm. The triple wash is we start with betadine. And then we go to hydrogen peroxide, which the, some people are reluctant to use because they're worried about air embolism. And then we wash, we clean it all out with bacitracin and saline. And the, I got that idea from a guy named Bombelli, who Clive, Clive would probably remember. He was an Italian, he worked in Bologna and he was a arthroplasty surgeon, and, but he also did a lot of osteotomies. Brilliant guy, Bombelli. And he visited Toronto because he had a sister living in Toronto. And he showed up at our rounds one day. And after the rounds, he introduced himself. He said, I'm Bombelli from Bologna. And I was like stunned, you know, because I knew that who this guy was. And he came to the OR and he told us about the triple wash. And we started using it uh, for our only for our revisions. Just revisions. Yeah. Just You're revisions. about the primary mark, right? No, not for the primary you know, Dr. Duncan and Dr. Gross, we're so very grateful for your time. Uh, this has been a great discussion and we don't want to take any more of your time. So I think we're hoping to wrap it up as well. Just very quickly, we'll give each of you a quick moment to give some recommendations for young orthopedic surgeons early in practice that are in particular, I think, in an academic career. What's your best advice and recommendations. Listen to your advisors, listen to those people you admire and respect the most who are humble and honest. 
look to the areas of orthopedics that have the greatest potential for growth and re residual problems. And one is spine, the other is arthroplasty and trauma. Now that the time is protected to do trauma and the caregivers in trauma are properly remunerated for it, that has turned into, I think, quite, quite a good career choice as well. I think you need to have the expectation of the university or the academic thing that your hospital is associated with, that you be remunerated for that as well. And I must say, and Alan knows my feelings about this, I think the fee-for-service paradigm is, do, does not give you a successful underpinning to an academic career in most instances. I think instead you need to look for a, a contract arrangement so that the length of time you spend looking after some difficult problems, you're not penalized for that. And the time you spend going after research money and publications and so forth is properly rewarded as well. Those would be my thoughts. They're actually looking at that in Ontario now, looking at very good salaries uh, for academic surgeons. Um, I would, I agree with Clive. I think you should pick something that you really have fun with. Keep an eye on the type of patients that the specialty you choose attracts. So, you know, if you're okay handling a certain segment of the population that may not be as compliant, but you have a lot of fun with it, then that's fine. But have fun with whatever you choose, focus, and I think the more you kind of subspecialize, the better, as long as you can afford to. In Canada, we can afford to because there's a lot of cross-fertilization. Surgeon, other orthopedic surgeons send us difficult cases. But I think the more focused you are and more subspecialized you are, like Jesse, you know, even though he's just starting out and he still does the occasional hip. He is, an, he is primarily a knee arthroplasty surgeon, and his practice will build like that. But pick something you have fun with. Don't jump on too many bandwagons. I've been through that, and I've gotten burnt. And don't worry too much about marketing. I know you have to worry about it more in the States than we have to worry about it in Canada, but don't let it influence you too much. And don't take your patients into a room alone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Dungan and Dr. Gross, for joining us. Make sure you visit the YAG website on aahks.org for information on how to join YAG and AUKUS, which is a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate advocate and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.